Since September 11, 2001, our nation's media has focused much, much attention on the Islamic uh, religion. And in typical postmodern fashion, most of the discussion has had little to do with fact and much to do with what people want to believe. I've had opportunity to read a number of columnists who offer bold defense of Islam without one shred of evidence that they know anything about the religion at all. All that matters is what we want to believe. As a case in point, I read a syndicated columnist recently who lambasted a pastor for saying that Muhammad was a terrorist. With bold derision, the columnist simply dismissed the pastor as a bigoted buffoon for holding such a politically incorrect notion. It apparently never dawned on this author, this columnist, to actually consider the historical facts of the matter. Had he considered the well-documented fact that Muhammad spent a period of his life raiding caravans as they entered the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia, he may have cut the pastor at least a little slack in his statement. One might choose to quibble, too, over whether or not Muhammad is a terrorist, and that's not my intention here today, but I seriously doubt that most of those caravan traders who had their things stolen at sword point would have a whole lot of problem with using the phrase. But my point is simply this. Too much of the discussion concerning Islam in our culture this, these days is based upon what people want to believe. Forget the facts of the matter. Just believe whatever feels good to believe in our setting. And in the process, Islam has become, in the eyes of many people, something it was really never meant to be. I think the very same problem plagues Christianity in our land. Jesus and the Christian faith are widely understood according to what people want to believe, whatever the facts might be. My goal this morning is to present the basic facts of Christianity. To look behind what people would like to believe it to be and what people would like to believe Jesus to be and to look at what the Scriptures teach and what Jesus Himself said. I want to go up front right away and to say, make it very clear, you must understand this is not a purely academic exercise. I speak as a man who worships Jesus Christ. And I believe with all of my heart that you must do the same. So we'll establish that right out of the gate. But I believe with all of my heart that the truths about genuine Christianity then are a matter of life and death. Your soul and your eternal destiny rest on your understanding of four questions I'd like to present to you this morning. I've presented them for many years to many people. I don't know that I've ever presented them to our church as such in this setting. But I'd like to present these questions to you. You may be able to answer these questions. And if so, please pray that we all might be able to grasp their meaning. And perhaps this will help you as you organize your own thoughts to be of help to others in, un in gaining understanding of these truths. I believe there's a handout in your uh, an insert in your bulletin that will lead you through the passages of Scripture that we're going to consider today. 
Now we encourage people always to bring a Bible. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you just to turn to these passages if you're able to do so. But uh, So as not to be troubling, and you can see it looks like an immense amount of material, and I suppose in some respects it is. But So you do not need to turn from page to page in the Bible. You can just follow along on that insert and hopefully can take this home and remember some of these passages in the future. We look, first of all, at John chapter 1. And we ask this question. Perhaps you know the answer to this question and to the others that will follow, and perhaps your answers do not really square with what the Bible says. That's what our test is here today, the Scriptures and what the Bible proclaims to be true about the Christian faith. But please consider what the Bible then reveals about the true message of Christianity. We will hang this discussion on these four questions and ask, first of all, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was not merely a prophet or religious teacher. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was God. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You will notice there in the first two verses that the discussion here is about the Word, and the Word is capitalized there. Well, notice also as we come to verse 2 that, it is, that this word is referred to as he. So we're talking about a person, a capital W word, a person. This word was, verse 1, with God and at the same time was God. That's a strange way of speaking. But saying that this person, whom John calls word, is with God and at the same time is God. This person was with God in the beginning. The beginning of what? Verse 3 says, He was in the beginning of all things. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So the Word who was with God and was God created the entire universe. That's staggering. That's quite a claim. But this is the claim of genuine Christianity. That the Word created all things. Just to take a quick excursus there for a moment to think of this. The speed of light, if we could sit on a chariot that was light and ride it around, we would ride around the earth seven and a half times in one second. It takes 11 hours for light to reach our planet from Pluto. In our normal size galaxy, the Milky Way, with its, 10, with its 100 billion stars, you can be sure that's a guess, 100 billion stars, is 80,000 light years in diameter. And there are billions of galaxies. And this creator of all things is referred to here as the Word. And this creator of all things reaches down to this tiny planet and takes attention of people. For it says in verse 4, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, the light of people. 
People on this small planet, this speck in the massive universe, this one, this word, he is the light of those people. The word gives the kind of life that can only be described as light. In John's writings, light is a metaphor that speaks of purity and truth and glory. So this God who creates has something to do with the people on this planet. This is an encouraging revelation. This word, this one who created the universe is in the business of giving life to people. Now, in the context of John, obviously, as you would take the rest of the book and read it, the context refers, the word refers to Jesus. This is a reference to him, and that will make more sense below. But first of all, let's consider the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We find further demonstrations of this very claim that Jesus is God. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. So his topic is Christ, and he says you will need to think differently than the world around. Notice what it says about Jesus, verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus did not have divinity put upon him. He did not tap into the divine realm. He is nothing less than God. All that God is in his infinite nature, Jesus is. Jesus is fully completely, in every sense of the word, God. The book right before Colossians, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2, 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So once again, Jesus is the topic here. Now we're in a very different context as to how Paul is applying this. But we notice here this statement about Jesus, verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In very nature God, the Greek original uh, writing of this passage would uh, be better translated in the form of God. This Greek word always refers in the New Testament to a visible form. This means that Jesus is the embodied, physical, visible form of the invisible God. He is equal with God. We notice there that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This verse does not indicate that Jesus became anything less than God. It means, though, as we will see later, that as God, Jesus surrendered for a time His eternal and heavenly adoration as God. He set aside what appeared to be His position as God, what was His position as God in heaven for a time, setting aside that adoration. In each of these three passages, that leads us to a second idea about Jesus, in each of these three passages, we consider that there is a second claim made about Jesus. So let's go back to those same passages. We're developing this topically. But back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 10. In that, this same passage that says the Word was God and created the universe, we read in verse 10 of John 1, 
He was in the world and through the world, and I'm sorry, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So the word was God and created the world, but by surrendering his eternal adoration as God for a time, the world he made did not recognize him as God. There was a full recognition of the word in heaven that is now set aside for a time. There were those who worshipped him, but there were many who did not. There were those who did not recognize him. They did not understand his glories. Verse 14, we see how this takes place. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You notice there that the word became flesh. So the Bible establishes that Jesus is God, but it also claims that Jesus is man. The word who created the universe became flesh took on humanity. You'll notice there that it does not say the Word was flesh, but it says that the Word became flesh. This points us to a place in time where something happened. God took on human flesh at a specific point in history. And it says here that we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. That takes us back to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This light, this one, fully God, comes to be man and shines His glory and His light, His truth and His purity in this world. Now I mentioned that all of those passages we looked at refer also to the humanity of Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 9 does as well. For Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives how? In bodily form. In bodily form. God dwells in Christ in bodily form. Or Godness, I should say, dwells in Christ in bodily form. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 also refer to the physical nature of Christ. Verse 7. This one who was equal with God and of the same form of God made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. So the one who was in the form of God took on the form of man. Now this was no accident. This was purposeful on the part of God. For Jesus in time to come to a place where he takes on flesh, there were prophets who wrote for many centuries. Not men that got together in a council chamber somewhere at a table and decided, let's make Jesus God. Let's see what we can pull off here. We're talking about prophets who wrote centuries apart from one another, and there were various messages that they proclaimed would take place at the coming of this Messiah, at this one, this Word who became flesh, the prophet Isaiah wrote in 7.14 of his prophecy that this one would be born of a virgin. In Micah 5.2, Micah claimed that this one would be born in the city of Bethlehem. In Daniel chapter 9, 25 and 26, Daniel said that 493 years after a decree is issued to permit the Jews to return to building Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince will come. 
And we could point to many other prophecies, but these men did not all know each other and work together on some scheme. They lived, some of them, hundreds of years apart, and they wrote with great specificity of who this person would be, the very city where he would be born, the very lineage that he would have, a, a Jew through Judah, through King David. This one would come to be born in Bethlehem, and he would be born 493 years after the issuing of the decree for the Jews to return. When Daniel wrote that, the Jews were in Babylon. There had been no decree issued. He says a decree will be issued. And you start counting from that point 493 years later. Obviously, no one's alive. But people keep these prophecies alive. There's no possibility of collaboration. 493 years later, Jesus comes and walks into Jerusalem as the prince. Jesus was a man. Jesus was God. But we notice also in these passages, thirdly, that Jesus is king. Jesus rules the universe today from heaven. Philippians chapter 2, in these very same verses, we have this concept. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, or in the same, in the same context. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, we see recorded there, Colossians 1:15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together." He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As Colossians 2.10 puts it, He is head over every power and authority. Jesus is God, the eternal creator of the universe. Jesus is man, born of a virgin, but man in every sense of the term. And Jesus is king. He rules the universe today from heaven's high throne. Do you know Jesus that way? This is who He is. We'll look in a few moments at what Jesus did while on earth, but first, let's consider how Christ's identity relates to us. And I think that's a natural question at this point, isn't it? Do you, have you ever met a celebrity? If you've met a celebrity, somebody very, very famous, you can never hear their name again without remembering how you relate to them. Maybe it's just a short moment in time, such as my experiences with celebrities. I don't know any in an ongoing way. But when I watch the Minnesota Twins, to take an example, I know intuitively that I don't relate to any of them. I have no idea who they are. As a matter of fact, if I saw them at the store, I probably wouldn't even recognize them. I don't know them. We all do that naturally as we see some very famous person on television or even if we do see them in passing. We realize we don't relate to them at all. But I, I remember one time as a single seminary student living in Minneapolis without a television, and that was a happy time. But uh, at any rate, I, I remember my mom calling me one night and saying, you need to find a television. I found a television. 
and I turned on the Vikings preseason game, and there on the television screen in front of my eyes, the quarterback for the Denver Broncos was a guy that I grew up with and played basketball against. Football never looked so ridiculous in all my life as when I saw a guy I knew out there playing football. But I could not see him like I saw the other players. There was something unique about our relationship, just the way I viewed him. I remember a time when I was able to get into an announcer's booth at a Twins game and met Bill White, who was an announcer for the Yankees. Anytime you hear Bill White, if you're an old baseball fan, you might recognize that name of Yankees fame. He became an announcer later. Uh, but I, ca I can never hear his name without remembering that event. I, I, I relate to him differently than I do to all the other baseball players, every single one in the universe, that I don't know. His son Tom was my friend, and that got me in, and maybe a little more on that later. But I remember re meeting Rudy Boschwitz in his Washington, D.C. office. I don't know how we got in there, but we did once when I was traveling through there. And I'll never forget that. When I see him on these goofy advertisements he does, I, just, I always think of him in Washington, D.C. I can't help but think of him that way. When I see Paul Douglas, the weatherman, my dad trimmed his trees. I can't think of him any other way. Matter of fact, I helped him one time, and it was the worst job I've ever done. We had to fell a tree into Lake Minnetonka off of Paul Douglas's yard. And if you ever try to remove a tree, period, that's hard work. Try to get it out of the water. That was really interesting, which is why I got the phone call from my dad. But I can never see him and not think about those things. Is the point clear? You've probably met somebody somewhere, ran into some celebrity, and you intuitively think about that meeting. I belabor this point to make this statement. When we consider who Jesus is, we have to consider how we relate to him. He's not a celebrity. He's much more than a celebrity. But that only heightens the fact that you will have to consider how you relate to him. When we see somebody that we would assume is, uh, is not very important, they're passing on the street, it may never even cross our mind how we relate to those people. We're driving down the freeway, we don't think about the people in the cars near us and how we relate to them. But when it is somebody of great importance, you intuitively do that. And as we come to the book of Romans, the book of Romans is, I think, to some degree intended to do just that to tell us how we relate to Jesus Christ. As we come to Romans chapter 2, we read in verse 6. Romans chapter 2 and verse 6. I believe it's on your handout there. If you'd like to read it there. Romans 2 and verse 6 says this. Let me first, before I even read that verse, just say very quickly that in the context of the book of Romans, God is revealed as creator and sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And it presses the point that as his creatures, we have a moral obligation to worship him and him alone and to obey his truth and his law. Now with that context, we come to verse 6 and read, God will give to each person according to what he has done. So God is the moral lawgiver. He rules the moral universe, and He will give to each person according to what He has done. 
Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. All right, I get the point. I just have to be good. I have to please God. And then he will give me what I deserve, eternal life. Sounds fair enough. Where do I start? I see who Jesus is. I see what I have to do. He's God. He's the lawgiver. I can receive eternal life. Now what? There's a big problem, says Paul. A very big problem. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that even our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. We have a problem. Our relationship with God is such that we cannot do what he calls us to do with, perfection, with the perfection that he insists upon. Now some object here at this point, and this is the, one of the places, one of the primary places where people begin to reinvent Christianity according to their own liking. I don't like that message, I don't want to hear that, and I'll just make Christianity into whatever I want it to be. The people object and may say something like, well, I'm a lot better than most people. I've done a lot of righteous things. Maybe God would accept me. Well, we need to be very careful because God has spoken here to say there's no one who is righteous, not even one that all falls short of the glory of God. Be very careful that you don't argue with God. But secondly, perhaps an illustration will help. God's law... Keeping God's law is kind of like hitting the bullseye on a target. Let's say that you're given an arrow and a bow, and God says to you the center of that target, that bullseye, is righteousness. It's being right before God. Now here's your bow and here's your arrow. Now before you shoot, I want to show you Jesus. And Jesus comes and He takes His bow and His arrow and He pulls it back and He fires at the target and it's a bullseye. And you're squinting to see it because it's so far away. But you can tell it's, yeah, it's pretty well there, right in the middle. And then He takes a second arrow and He pulls back and He fires again and He splits the first arrow right down the middle and the head lodges right into the head of the first one. And He does it again and again and again and then turns to you and says, shoot. You pull back your air and you give it the best shot you can, but time and time and time again, you don't hit the bullseye. The point of the book of Romans is that in order to be at peace with God, we must hit the bullseye every single time. God's righteousness is complete and it is absolute. And any objection that we might offer to say, I'm pretty good before God. I'm better than my neighbors. I, he stops us and says, you have to hit the bullseye every single time. And the harder we try and we practice all of our life, we realize that we don't hit it every time. Well, that's a troubling thought. 
particularly in a culture such as ours where everybody's okay. Because I'm okay, I'll give you the benefit that you're okay, and we got a little problem here. And so the objection often comes at this point, but you're saying that everyone falls short of God's standard? Everybody? That's exactly what God's Word says. But what about innocent babies? Well, we'll all acknowledge that babies do not have a full sense of God's law and violate that law, but what happens when those babies grow up? Parents, are you diligently teaching your children to steal and lie and disobey and be angry and be unkind? I don't have to teach those things. We have to teach and we have to train children to be honoring to the Lord, to tell the truth, to be kind, to love. It comes naturally to us to disobey God and to be sinful. We find it very easy. As a matter of fact, when God says don't do it, we find welling up within us a desire to do exactly what He said don't do. And when He says do this, we find welling up within us a desire to rebel against His command and to not do it. This is our nature. Now we can fool ourselves, we can pretend it away, and we live in a culture that has made a living out of forgetting all of this truth and trying to pretend that it isn't real. But the Word of God says in Ephesians 2.3 that we live under the wrath of God because we violate His law by nature. Now that's not very good news, is it? It's not intended to be good news. It's like going into a doctor with a burn or a rash on your skin and you hold out your hand and the doctor looks and does some tests and comes back and says, we've got more of a problem than you thought. It's not just what's on the outside on your skin. You've got some problems inside. You have cancer. Now that's not good news, but I bet you all of us would be pretty thankful that doctor told us the truth. And that's what the Bible does. It looks us in the eyes and he tells us, God tells us the truth. The truth is you are bent towards sin and you cannot keep the law of God. It's not good news And if we really got the picture of it in the presence of a holy God, we would tremble. We would shake with fear when we considered this one who has created all things and we stand before him as violators of his law. But that leads to the good news. Question three. We'll go a little quicker on these, but think carefully with me. What did Jesus do? Jesus is God and we are sinners. That we have established in the first two questions. But this takes us back to the issue that Jesus is man. Why did Jesus become a man? Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Jesus says there, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, lostness is a way of describing what we've just described out of the book of Romans, that we are incapable of keeping the law of God, that we fall short of His glory. We are lost and separated from Him. But Jesus says, I have come to rescue the lost. In John chapter 3 and verse 17, we find this encouraging truth from the lips of Jesus. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. This is very good news. Can you follow this carefully? I know this is kind of a hard sentence. I didn't know how else to put it, but I believe this is true. Everything you could possibly wish to be true about God 
without destroying God is true. That's John 3.17. Everything you could possibly wish to be true about God without destroying God is true. He could condemn the world, but He has come into the world to save. Jesus was not sent to condemn. God could condemn without sending Christ. But He sends Him into the world to rescue Him. How does Jesus provide then this salvation? How does He provide this rescue? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. We looked at this sometime recently here as a church, but it speaks so profoundly to the work that Jesus has done. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. In verse 22, it says that He committed no sin, yet in verse 24, it says that He bore our sins on the tree, that is on the cross. So when Jesus died, He bore your curse in His body. The one who could shoot the arrows and hit the target took your place and took the penalty of your violating the law of God. Your sin was counted against Jesus, who then took your place and suffered the penalty of your sin, physical death. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the context here is the Old Testament sacrificial system. We know that the Bible is divided into two large books, the Old Testament the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a very careful, precise procedure of animal sacrifice. That was not barbaric, but it was a way of God showing, demonstrating very carefully that as a lamb is laid on an altar, its throat is slit, and the sinner places his hand on that animal, that in a picture, in a, it is a picture of that person's sin being transferred onto that animal, that animal taking that person's place. It's no mistake that John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you grab a hold of that idea? This God who created all things, who is the absolute ruler, who is the lawgiver of this universe, has come to this earth as a man and has taken your place as your sacrificial substitute. And it is as such you may place through faith your hand on His head as He dies for you and your sin is transferred unto Him. Why did Jesus do this? Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why did He do that? You see the phrase, so that, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So that we might live for righteousness. This is the reason that Jesus died in our place. He died bearing our sins so that we can live righteously. His wounds, His suffering on the cross make such a, uh, create such a relationship to God on the part of those who believe. He made this sacrifice. How was this sacrifice made effective? We enter in here a second concept, and that is that Jesus, this one who bore our penalty and died in our place, also rose from the dead. And Paul instructs us here that that is absolutely essential in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. 
We read there, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means the first one to rise from the dead and stay living, the first one of all those who will do the same through him. This is what Jesus did. This is why he did it. In the same chapter where we learn then in Romans that there is no one righteous, not even one. God says this to us in light of Christ's death and resurrection. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. This same book that condemns us as lost and fallen and separated from God. This same book says this. Listen to this good news. Romans 3.21 But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. That's what I need. How about you? That's what I need. A righteousness apart from law. A righteousness that's not connected to keeping the perfect law of God. A righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Let me just stop there, though, with verse 22. Through faith uh, that this righteousness comes from God, this righteousness is from God and comes through faith. What do we need to believe, then? That Jesus is who He says He is. That he died to pay the cost of sin and that he rose from the dead in defeat of sin and death. We call this the gospel, the good news. Two basic ideas, the historical fact of Jesus' death and resurrection and the theological meaning. He died in the sinner's place to provide salvation from sin. Now that leads to a fourth question. This is very good news. But we ask a fourth question, what must I do? Look again at Romans 3.22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We notice that it's a salvation of God. So when we say, what must I do? The only thing that we can really say is we can speak in terms of reception. Of receiving from God what He has provided. But it's from God. It's not a salvation that comes from us. It is through faith. That is, we must embrace this message, trust Christ as our personal Savior. Notice chapter 4 of Romans. Paul drives this point home when he says in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about. In other words, if somebody went back to that passage in Romans and said, okay, I see what I have to do. I have to be a good person and then I'll get eternal life. That person can boast, right? I was better than other people and I made my way to heaven. But what does it say here? It was, he was justified. If he was justified by works, he could boast, but not before God. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do? He believed. And in belief, his, that was credited to him as righteousness from God. Now, verse 4, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. All right, here we go. Here's one of those things of Christianity that gets absolutely misplaced. People don't buy this concept generally when they think of Christianity. Notice what verse 5 says. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith 
is credited as righteousness. It says that God does not justify good people. He justifies wicked people. What does Paul mean? How is that possible? He does not say those who have not sinned gain righteousness, but those who have been forgiven. Not those who disregard Christ's work, but those who place their faith and their confidence in it. What does he mean? The wicked are justified. We bring this all together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works are to be part of the Christian life, but they're the caboose on the train, not the engine. They don't create salvation, they evidence salvation. And they will evidence salvation. But we have to go back to verses 8 and 9 and realize that God justifies the wicked as a gift. And that is evidenced in the life of those who trust in what Christ has done and receive this salvation by grace alone. Let me illustrate this if I can go back, and I've done this many times. You've heard this, those of you that have been around here very long. But I mentioned Bill White, the Yankee star who became an announcer. His son, Tom, was my friend that grew up in high school with him. And I moved out here. I used to live on the East Coast, so I moved out here. My friend Tom bought a ticket, to go along with the, or went along with the Yankees on a trip, and he got me into the Twins game, the old Met Stadium. I'm old. But now they're trying to tear down the next one, right? <laughs> uh, he got me into the game. I got to go everywhere. I got to go into the announcer's booth. I got to go in by the locker rooms. I got to go into places all over the place. One place, the doors opened up, and there was the press. I mean, it really felt like you were important, you know? We were the first ones out. We beat all the players out before they were dressed, and here's all the, the press corps around this door. He knew where he was, what he was doing, what was going on. I didn't know anything. But I got into that game because I knew Tom. Maybe I could say two reasons. First of all, I had a personal relationship with him. I got in not because of who I was. I got in because of who he was. I could have gone to that gate and stood there at the ticket collector or the attendee there and said, listen, I know Bill White. What would the guy say? <laughs> you're out of here. You'd say you know anybody. But you're not coming here. I got into that game without paying anything. I didn't have to put, even give him a ticket. I just walked in because I knew Tom. How foolish it would be for me to stand outside the gate and say, listen, I've played baseball before. I was on a junior high team. You want to hear about it? Say, who are you? Get out of here. But I knew Tom, and so I got in for free. And I guess secondly, I could say with that, I also trusted him. I did exactly what he told me to do. I didn't get out of line at all. I just did what he said to do. I followed right behind his shoulder, and I got wherever he led me to go. Now, my question to each of you today is if you died this afternoon, and you stood before God, would you enter heaven like that? Or would you stand at the gate and tell God all the good things you'd done? 
or that you knew somebody somewhere that was a Christian, I suggest to you that the only way that we will ever be privileged to enter in the presence of an absolute, holy, creator God is if we come with Jesus Christ as our ticket in. He paid the penalty of sin. He provides salvation and entrance before God. It is our job to believe that what He has done is sufficient to bring us before the Father, and we need to trust Him and obey Him and do what He says and enter heaven on His righteousness, not ours. So as Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There are two absolutely unique and unparalleled facts that undergird true Christianity. First of all is this. You are a sinner and cannot save yourself. You'll look the world over for a religion that tells you that. That you have no capacity to save yourself by yourself, within yourself. And secondly, Christianity says that there was a perfect sacrificial substitute who took your death penalty and paid it and defeated death. Every other religion in this world tells you somehow, in some shape or form, that you can be good enough to please God by doing the right things. And every religion, in some shape or form, follows a dead teacher. Genuine Christianity says, Jesus is God. He was man, and He is King. I am fallen and sinful, but He paid the penalty of my sin on the cross. And through faith in what He has done, I will trust His work. I will cling to His provision. And I will enter heaven on His merits. And so the call before those who know not Christ as Savior is to receive Him. As John 1.12 says, to all who receive Him. To those who believe in His name, He gives the power to become the children of God. That power is not in you. It's not in anybody here. That power comes from God alone. And He'll give you that power to become His child if you will believe in what Christ has done. Embrace it and trust it and throw the full weight of your eternal soul upon it. Let's bow for prayer as we close. Our Father, I pray for those who know you as Savior, and I pray that you'll hear our prayers for those who may not. We pray, dear God, that you will, by your grace, call and draw and strengthen those of us who know you as, as Savior and those of us who uh, do not. We pray, Lord, that you'll embrace, that they will embrace you. We do not know uh, your eternal purposes concerning each person. There's no way that we can. We know, dear God, as our choir has sung, that it's you who calls and it's you who draws. But we just pray, dear Lord, that, there, that you would move, that you would enlighten eyes, that you would call forth people from the dead, and that we might see those who know you not as Savior embrace you as Lord. And for those of us who do, that we would proclaim this gospel freely and effectively to a dying world. We thank you for the salvation that's in Christ, so rich and free, a gift from you,
And I pray that we might all have embraced it by the time we even leave here today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please stand as we...